You know, one of the things we love about preaching through Scripture is you end up dealing with things that you would never otherwise talk about. And today is no exception. Uh, we're in the middle of a series on Exodus. Uh, we're moving into a section of the book of Exodus that runs for three chapters. It's called the Book of the Covenant. And another couple of weeks examining what they have to say. But today's passage is to our modern ears one of the most controversial books or sections of the whole Bible. So I want us to pay careful attention as we read from Exodus chapter 21, verses 1 through to 11. Exodus 21 1 through to 11. I'm going to read. Now these are the rules that you shall set before them. When you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve six years, and in the seventh he shall go out free for nothing. If he comes in single, he shall go out single. If he comes in married, then his wife shall go out with him. If his master gives him a wife and she bears him sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall be her masters, shall be her masters, and he shall go out alone. But if the slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife, and my children, I will not go out free. Then his master shall bring him to God, and he shall bring him to the door or the doorpost, and his master shall bore his ear through with an awl, and he shall be his slave forever. When a man sells his daughter as a slave, she shall not go out as the male slaves do. If she does not please her master who has designated her for himself, then he shall let her be redeemed." He shall have no right to sell her to a foreign people since he has broken faith with her. If he designates her for his son, he shall deal with her as with the daughter. If he takes another wife to himself, he shall not diminish her food, her clothing, or her marital rights. And if he does not do these things for her, she shall go out for nothing without payment of money. Why don't you pray with me? Lord God, we want to thank you for your word. We want to thank you that it's diverse, that it's living and breathing. And Lord, for this morning, we pray that you would help me. Help me to faithfully preach your word. Help us to receive the goodness, the joy, the life-giving hope that is contained within these words. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if I were to ask you, to describe yourself this morning, what would you say? If I were to ask you to describe yourself, what would you say? I might say, you know, I'm a pastor and I'm a physiotherapist. Well, that's kind of what I do. I might say, you know, I'm passionate, pretty intense, also easygoing. I wear my heart on my sleeve. What you see is what you get. Well, that's kind of like what I'm like. I might say 
I'm a father, or as a Christian, I might say, I'm a child of God, an heir with Christ, part of God's family. But what about a slave? You see, the earliest Christians saw themselves not just as followers of Jesus, not even just as hired hands or servants, but as slaves. Romans, at the very start of Paul's letter to the Romans in Romans 1.1, it says, Paul, a servant, literally slave of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle. 2 Peter 1.1 starts in the same way. Simon Peter, a slave and apostle of Jesus Christ. Jude 1. Jude, a slave of Jesus Christ and brother of James. You know, we live in this kind of hyper-individualistic society that's built on individual rights. The right to free speech, the right to travel, the right to healthcare, the right to education, the right to equal opportunity, the right to self-determination. And because of our rights-based culture, the very notion of slavery is abhorrent. But as a result, I put to you, we've lost what is a powerful metaphor in the Bible for our relationship with Christ. You see, in the Bible, slavery is a metaphor for complete devotion to the Lord Jesus Christ. This message I've entitled this morning, Slave of Christ. And I've got really two uh, questions that I want to deal with this morning as we unpack the text. First, what does, our Bible, uh, what does our passage teach about slavery? And secondly, how does our passage speak to us today? And really one hope that we're going to be driving at throughout this message for us this morning, and that is that we would give wholehearted devotion to our master, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what my hope for us this morning as we read this text is that we would give wholehearted devotion to the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's dive in and look at that first question. What does our passage teach about slavery? Well, if you talk to people in the streets of Warunga about Christianity, it won't take long before someone raises the simple objection. But doesn't the Bible endorse slavery? Uh, By definition, a slave is a person whose being and service belong wholly to another. Uh, When we talk about slavery here in our context, usually we have in mind uh, what we call New World Slavery, which happened in the 16th through the 19th centuries mainly, where millions and millions of Africans and indigenous people were abducted against their will by European colonialists and sold for life. Uh, We're referring usually to the horrible oppression, the abuse of people based on their ethnicity, based on a belief that there's kind of an ethnic pyramid hierarchy with white people at the top and indigenous and black people right down the bottom of the pyramid. And, And this kind of idea that black people are born to be a serving class. Uh, You might also have in mind this kind of sex slavery that exists in our world where millions of poor women and children uh, are exploited for the benefit and pleasure of the rich. You know, one thing that recently brought this issue to mind was when I watched uh, the movie, the brilliant and, and yet disturbing movie, 12 Years a Slave. It's a powerful film that's based on the memoirs of an African American man called Solomon Northup. 
Uh, you see, Solomon was born as a free man in New York. He was a professional musician up until 1841 when he was kidnapped by two conmen and sold into slavery, leaving behind his wife and two children. And for 12 years, he serves as a slave in the South. His family moving on, believing him to be dead until after 12 years, he's finally released. And there's this powerful scene uh, where Solomon, having just been sold into slavery, is pleading his innocence, proclaiming that he's a freed man when his captor repeatedly beats him and beats him and beats him. As he pleads his innocence, his captor says, you're a slave, whack, you're a slave, whack, and beats him until he's just left a broken, bleeding mess. And the truth is that multitudes of people who call themselves Christians also embrace this system and even use the Bible to justify it. Solomon Northup in his memoirs writes about his second master, William Ford, who was also a Baptist minister, and he writes the following. He says, in my opinion, there never was a more kind, noble, candid Christian man than William Ford. The influences and associations that had always surrounded him blinded him to the inerrant wrong at the bottom of the system of slavery. And you know what, friends, this morning as we read this passage in an initial reading, you might begin to believe that the Bible also supports this kind of system. Uh, Read Exodus 21, verse 2. It says, when you buy a Hebrew slave. Well, the question stands, what does our passage teach about slavery? Well, our passage provides a list of rules regulating slavery, but the slavery it regulates looks nothing at all like the African slave trade. Put another way, slavery is described as being practiced by different nations throughout the Bible But the slavery our passage describes looked nothing at all like New World slavery. Well, how did it differ? Well, in six main different ways, which I'll quickly review now. First of all, it did not involve kidnapping and selling people. The Old Testament treats the kidnapping and selling of people as a capital offense. It says just after our passage in Exodus 21.16, whoever steals a man and sells him and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. The type of slavery you see in 12 years a slave is explicitly condemned by the Bible. Even if you were found in possession of a kidnapped person, you would receive the death penalty. Secondly, Slavery in the Bible was not ethnically based like New World slavery. Uh, We see this even in the book of Genesis. In, In Genesis 16, we have Hagar, who was an Egyptian slave at the hands of Hebrew slave masters in Abraham and Sarah. But then jump forward to Genesis 37, and you have Joseph, who was a Hebrew slave at the hands of Egyptian slave masters. Commenting on the Greco-Roman system of slavery in the New Testament, uh, Bible scholar Murray Harris says the following. He says, In the first century, slaves were not distinguishable from free persons by speech, race, or by clothing. They were sometimes more highly educated than their owners and held 
responsible professional positions. Some persons sold themselves into slavery for economic or social advantage. They could reasonably hope to be emancipated, that's set free, after 10 to 20 years of service or by their 30s at the latest. They were not denied the right to public assembly and were not socially segregated, at least in cities. They could accumulate savings to buy their freedom. Their natural inferiority was not assured. Slavery in the Bible was not ethnically based like we see in the African slave trade. Thirdly, slavery in the ancient world was a way of avoiding destitution. You see, in the ancient world, there was no welfare state. There was no welfare system to look after you. Famine hit, or you were injured, or you are unemployed. An option for a family member facing starvation was to sell yourself into slavery. If you were a slave, at least you would be guaranteed to have food and clothing and accommodation and money to release your family from debt. And this is also the context that we see throughout our passage as we read it. Fourthly, the Bible speaks into a context where slavery was prevalent. That is, it doesn't create slavery, but it operates within it. Exodus itself begins by describing God's people as a nation of slaves. It focuses in on the cruel injustice that befell them, and it condemns it. I think it's important for us to understand that in the New Testament, Greco-Roman society was built on slavery. It couldn't exist without slavery. It was estimated that there were 2 million slaves in Italy out of 5 to 6 million people living in Italy. That means in Italy at the time that most of the New Testament was being written, 30 to 40% of all people were slaves. You see, the Bible doesn't directly speak to the system but it describes how people ought to honour God whilst living in a society that has this system. Similarly, many of the first Christians were actually slaves themselves. For example, Onismus, who was owned by Philemon. Fifthly, the context of Exodus as a whole, the book we've been reading, is a people who have been rescued from oppressive slavery. Israel was a slave nation, and enslaved based on their ethnicity, and God liberated them from slavery. Before giving the slave laws in Deuteronomy, Moses says this, he says in Deuteronomy 15.15, you shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord God redeemed you. Therefore, I command you this today. Israelites were to remember that they were slaves themselves, and this was meant to influence and affect the way they'll treat other slaves. Exodus 23, 9 says this, it says, You shall not oppress a sojourner. You know the heart of a sojourner, for you are sojourners in the land of Egypt. You know what it's like to be enslaved, says God to the people of Israel. In fact, that the Israelites themselves had been slaves was meant to lead them to compassion and care for slaves. And lastly, Exodus is deeply concerned with guarding the safety and dignity of all vulnerable people, especially slaves. You know, why is it that this book of the covenant, this whole section devoted to unpacking the Ten Commandments and their principles of living them out in society, begins with laws about the treatment of slaves? This is not the normal in other ancient Near East texts. In other texts, pretty much universally, laws about slaves go at the end because they're the least important. 
Here, they begin the very book. It's because God is so concerned about the treatment of slaves, he not only rescued a whole slave nation, he begins with instructions about their treatment. You see, our passage, as we unpack it, is divided into two sections, really. Laws surrounding the treatment of regular slaves in verses 2 through to 6, and then laws surrounding female slaves sold for the purpose of marriage in verses 7 through to 11. So let's begin unpacking the passage itself and see what it says. First of all, laws regarding the treatment of regular slaves in verses 2 through to 6. The very first thing we observe is that enslavement in the Old Testament was to be for a limited time only. Read with me in uh, verses 1 through to 2. It says this. Now these are the rules that you shall set before them. When you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve six years, and in the seventh he shall go out free for nothing. See, the idea of enforcing or forcing someone to serve their whole life in slavery was abhorrent in the Bible. What people experienced in Egypt, uh, in Africa, in the New World, is, is not the plan and purpose of God here. After six years of service, they were to be released for nothing. That is, no fee to be paid, nothing at all. Unconditional release. No matter the size of the debt, six years and done. You know, there's probably many mortgage holders uh, in this room that are probably thinking, oh, that's a pretty attractive option, actually. I'll, I'll take six years and done. You see, slavery in Israel, in some ways, was more akin to military service. Six years locked in. See, the passage then examines how a person should be treated as they enter into slavery on the basis of their marital status. Read with me verse 3. It says, if he comes in single, he shall go out single. If he comes in married, then his wife shall go out with him. If someone's bought uh, when they're single, they sell themselves when they're single, they leave single. If they sell themselves into slavery and they're married, they leave married. You can't demand that the wife and kids stay behind. Now, this next verse is a little bit more complicated. Read with me verse 4. If his master gives him a wife and she bears him sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall be her masters, and he shall go out alone. Okay, but if he marries during his period of service, he's able to leave, but his wife and children must remain. What? Why is that? How does that make any sense? Well, I think the thing that you need to understand is that at that time, marriage was very different from what it looks like now. At that time, marriages were arranged, and a man would pay a woman's father a bride price and then they could be married. Now, if a man was enslaved, presumably because of debt or poverty, he would not be able to afford that price. And so implicitly, the master has paid for it himself. More, a man has come in as a single slave, and so his master has bought him uh, under the understanding that he's going to be paying for his food and his accommodation, etc., etc., his living costs. And now this responsibility has increased due to the presence of a whole family. You see, this law is about protecting the master from being taken advantage of. You notice the text, it's perfectly reasonable for a slave to wait until the end of his service period before marrying. 
It's only if he chooses to marry implicitly sponsored by his master under which circumstance he can't then just leave. Read on verses 5 and 6. It says this, But if the slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife and my children, I will not go out free, then his master shall bring him to God, and he shall bring him to the door or the doorpost, and his master shall bore his ear through with an awl, and he shall be his slave forever. The only ordinary instance in which lifelong slavery is permitted amongst Israelites is where the slave voluntarily enters into it out of love for his master. The slave must plainly say, say, it must be his explicit will that he loves his master. So he must take him to God, probably to the sanctuary for the priests to hear that this slave's testimony. To the doorpost of his master's house, he will then be taken and a nail will be put through his earlobe, presumably symbolizing lifelong dedication to listening and obeying his master. That's our first section, regular laws about the treatment of slaves. Secondly, we then move into the second section of our passage, which is really laws surrounding the special treatment of female slaves sold for the purpose of marriage. Uh, This second section contains laws that were specifically for the situation where a man sells his daughter into slavery with the view to her becoming a bride in her new master's home. Read with me verses 7 and 8. It says, When a man sells his daughter as a slave, she shall not go out as the male slaves do. If she does not please her master who has designated her for himself, then he shall let her be redeemed. He shall have no right to sell her to a foreign people since he has broken faith with her. In this situation, she's not being sold for six years. The view is to marriage. It's to a lifelong commitment. If the master who has taken her as a slave with a view to marry her changes his mind, she is to be protected. She may be purchased from him by a kinsman redeemer, but only within her people. That is, only within the people that hold to these laws protecting her. He can't just sell her off to foreigners. He's broken faith with her. Read on verses 9 through to 11. It says, If he designates her for his son, he shall deal with her as with a daughter. If he takes another wife to himself, he shall not diminish her food, her clothing, or her marital rights. And if he does not do these things for her, she shall go out for nothing without payment of money. If he buys her to marry His son, he needs to treat her like he would a daughter. This is amazing. This is the full rights of a daughter, it says. Literally, if he takes to himself another, that is, if he decides to marry someone else other than this slave, her food, her clothing, and our translation says, marital rights shall not decrease. That word marital rights only occurs in this instance in the whole Bible and there's some discussion about what it means and uh, Desmond Alexander in his recent commentary says that it's probably actually better translated as oil. Either way, this woman should not be neglected if her master chooses for her not to be married in his home. If he deprives her of any of these things, of food, of clothing, or of oil, if she's mistreated in any way, It says she's to be released for free. 
This means her father's debt would have been cancelled, but now his daughter is free. You see, our passage shows that contrary to popular opinion, God is deeply concerned with the protection of slaves. Just as God rescued his people from cruel exploitation, he cares deeply about the plight of vulnerable slaves and so begins his book of the covenant with radical laws to protect them. They're to serve for a limited time only, for six years only, and where a woman is sold to marriage, she is to be afforded protection. More still, throughout the rest of the first five books of the Bible, there are multiple additional laws that further protect slaves, and I'll read you a list of them. Firstly, slaves were to join in the Sabbath rest in Exodus 20, verse 10, and in feasts in Exodus 12, 43. When released, they had to be given generous provisions so they could be self-sufficient, Deuteronomy 15, 13 through to 14. If they were permanently injured by their master, they would be released immediately, Exodus 21, 26. Impoverished workers who sold themselves were to be treated as paid workers in Leviticus 25, 39-40. A slave could accumulate property and wealth and purchase their own freedom in Leviticus 25, 49. Slaves fleeing from foreign masters, that is, masters who don't hold to these laws protecting slaves, regardless of whether the slave was a Hebrew slave or a foreign slave, had to be granted asylum in Deuteronomy 23, 15-16. Slaves bore no physical marker of being slaves unless they chose lifelong slavery, as our passage says. Slave owners are twice commanded not to treat slaves harshly in Leviticus 25, 43 and 46. You see, in in fact, our passage ultimately suggests that the ideal relationship between a master and a slave was to be one of love. Uh, Desmond Alexander, in his commentary, says the following. He says, implicit in these rulings is the idea that the ideal relationship between a slave and his master should be one of love. The master providing for the needs of the slave, even to the extent of getting him a wife. And the slave, in turn, acknowledging the security provided by the master in a society that had no state-funded welfare provision for those in poverty. So, What does our passage teach about slavery? It teaches that slaves are dear to the heart of God and therefore to be protected and not exploited and that the ideal relationship between a slave and a master is to be one of love, grounded in service and care. Well, not just what does our passage teach about slavery, but question two we move to now with the remainder of our time How does our passage speak to us today? You might be sitting there and thinking, that was a lovely little history lesson, Brendan. But what on earth does slavery have to do with my life right now? And I want to say everything. It's got everything to do with your life. Regardless of whether you're a Christian or not, it's got the utmost relevance for you right now. I want you to taste it. Just imagine for a second, just imagine... Pausing for a moment, imagine what it would be like to be a slave. To our culture, slavery is so appalling because we, as I've said, are in an individual rights-based culture. My right to free speech, my right to choose who I will marry, my right to travel, to work, to buy a house. Imagine if you're owned by someone else. You have no rights. You know, in Roman law, a slave was considered a mortal object, not a person 
but property. Another expression in Greco-Roman law was that they were called inarticulate tools. An inarticulate tool is an ox. An articulate tool is a slave. You cannot choose where you will live. You cannot choose what you will do. You cannot expect reward for your effort. That's your duty. You cannot speak your mind. You cannot act in your own interests. You belong to your master. Live or die, up to your master. Well, what does slavery have to do with me? Here's the truth. According to the Bible, if you are a person, you are a slave. You see, according to the Bible, the natural condition of every person is to be enslaved to their selfish desires. Second Peter 2.19 says this. It says, For what overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. Galatians 4.3 says this. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. Titus 3.3 says this, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, let us stray slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. And the Lord Jesus says this, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. You know, the message of the Bible is that every person is born distant and disconnected from God. We've become self-obsessed. We've become consumed by our own selfish desires and isolated from God. We cannot help but pursue what we want for ourselves all the time. More money, more recognition, more fame, better relationships, better career, better possessions, better power. And the Bible describes this obsession as so powerful it's like slavery. Desire owns you. You're bound in chains. You're trapped for life. It feels like freedom. I can live any way I please, but actually it's bondage. The only way you can live is to please yourself. It's a path that leads to self-destruction. In many ways, it's like the ice addict who freely chooses to take a hit every day. It's not freedom. It's bondage that leads to death. More sin owns you because of its penalty. All defiance against God accrues a debt and debt keeps us enslaved and it hangs over our head and we cannot shake it. But here's the beautiful message of the gospel. It's that God did not leave us enslaved to sin. He sent his son to take our place as a slave. Philippians 2, 5 through to 8 says this, Have this mind amongst yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he were, was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be used to his advantage, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a slave. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The Lord Jesus came, and Paul writes, he took the form of an in Greek doulos. That word means only one thing in the New Testament. It means slave. What was his life marked by? Obedience. Obedience even to the point of death. 
the act of a slave. And Jesus himself says it this way in Mark 10, 43. He says, but it shall not be among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be the slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus says the greatest is the slave of all. That means the least of slaves, the lowest slave. The example of the least of slaves was the example of Jesus, who gave his life as a ransom, who prayed the prayer of a slave. What's the prayer of a slave? But not my will, but yours be done. You know, in the first century, the cross was a shameful death, a death considered befitting of a slave, because a slave was considered less than human. And that is the death of our Lord Jesus. A ransom paid the price for the release of a slave from a slave. You know, in verse 8 of our passage, a woman sold as a bride could be bought out of slavery by a kinsman redeemer. If the bride-to-be's owner changed his mind or was displeased with his bride, she could be bought by someone else. We were the bride enslaved to a cruel master, the prince of this world, our own desires. But the Lord humbled himself as a slave to take our place and purchase us back. Paul puts it this way in 1 Corinthians 6.20. He says, you are not your own. You were bought at a price. You know, if you're destitute, impoverished, starving, facing death, sold into slavery, you can be set free by your master, but that's not really freedom because without help, you will die. True freedom is to have a new master who knows you and deeply loves you and is working always only for your good. And you see, that brings us to the second way this passage speaks to us, and that is that Christians are those who have become enslaved to the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, the Bible teaches that the natural condition of every person is to be enslaved to their own selfish desires, but Christians are those who have been purchased by Christ. That is, the Bible teaches that if you're a Christian, you're a slave of Christ. In Romans, Paul puts it this way. He says in Romans 14.4, But who are you to judge or pass judgment on the servant, literally the domestic slave of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls. And he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. Down in verse 7 now. For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, listen to this, we are the Lord's. Whether we live or die, our whole aim of life is to be to please our master. More, we are the Lord's. We belong to him. We're his possession. This means, this is what it means when we call Christ our Lord. To call someone Lord or Master in the New Testament is to bend the knee as their slave. You're my master, you own me. 
In a beautiful way then, this kind of enslavement that we have with Christ takes us all the way back to our passage and the man who voluntarily gives himself for life to his master out of love for him. Read with me again, uh, chapter 21, verse 5, it says, But if the slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife, and my children, I will not go out free, then his master shall bring him to God, and he shall bring him to the door or doorpost, and his master shall bore his ear through with an awl, and he shall be his slave forever. This is a beautiful picture of a slave who, motivated by love, decides to remain forever with his master. And that's us. Christ redeems us. He opens our eyes and we say to him, I'm yours forever. Murray Harris puts it this way. He says, A slave is someone whose person and service belong wholly to another. As Christ purchased possession, the Christian is wholly devoted to the person of the master. As Christ's movable property, the Christian is totally available for the master's use. Well, here's the question. If you're sitting here this morning and you're a Christian, do you see yourself this way? Do you see yourself as a slave of the Lord Jesus Christ? And here's our problem on the North Shore. It's so easy to view Christ as part of our life, but he's not our life. Come on Sunday and we think, yeah, that's amazing. Yes. And then we kind of leave and we carry on. When it comes to our finances, our career, the decisions we make, how we spend our time, we can have little to no reference to God. We view ourselves as more of kind of like servants or hired hands. We we do the odd thing for God, but we feel a liberty to live our lives as we please. Do you know what the difference between a servant and a slave is? Ownership. A servant is paid for service. A slave is the property of his master. Can you be a slave part-time? Can you have him as Lord of part of your life? No, if he is your Lord, he owns all of you. Well, how do we apply this passage? Two words of application for us this morning, I believe, from the Lord. Firstly, if you're here and you're not a Christian, our passage, I believe, points to an incredible new master that is offering himself to you. You know, we're all naturally enslaved to our selfish desires, but we don't have to be. The Lord Jesus would love to set you free and take you in as his own. His kindness and love is like nothing you've ever experienced. He's paid for all your debts with his life. And all he asks is that you would take him to be your master forever. And, you know, on behalf of the team at the church, we'd love nothing more than to help you if that's you this morning. Um, grab someone. Grab the person who brought you along. Grab someone at the welcome desk. We would love to help you how to experience the freedom to be found in having a new master in the Lord Jesus Christ. But secondly, if you're here and you're a Christian, which I believe is the majority of us, our passage reminds us 
that we are slaves with an incredible master. See, our master is the most loving and humble and self-sacrificing man that ever lived. More his God himself, and we are his treasured possession. To be Christ's willing slave then, according to Murray Harris, involves three things. First of all, to be Christ's slave involves humble submission. We acknowledge his authority over us. He has total authority over us. He can do as he likes. Secondly, it means unquestioning obedience. We pledge to follow him wherever he leads us. Thirdly, it means an exclusive preoccupation with pleasing him. We devote ourselves to pleasing him and making him smile. Paul puts it this way in 2 Corinthians 5.9. He says, so whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. Here's the hard question I want us to really sit on and think about this morning. How devoted are you to your master? How devoted are you to him? Now, I wonder if there's some people sitting here this morning who realize they've been living as though Jesus is their part-time employer and not their master. There's an area or areas of your life that you haven't really been willing to let him have control. Whether that be a relationship or money or career or how you use your time. I want to remind you, he's a wonderful master and he's worthy of your trust. We need to take some time to pray and recommit yourself to him through a simple prayer. A prayer that goes something like this. I'm sorry for not living as a true slave of you, my Lord. Thank you for being such a wonderful master. I acknowledge your authority over every aspect of my life. Lord, wherever you lead me, I will follow. Help me to live ever only to please you and you alone. I just encourage you, if that's you, take some time, even now, to pray that prayer and make it your own. Well, in closing, what does our passage teach us about slavery? That slavery the Bible regulates is very different to the kind of slavery we are familiar with. Slavery was an ancient way of caring for the poor and vulnerable. That slaves are dear to the heart of God and therefore to be protected and not exploited. And that the ideal relationship between slave and master is to be one of love grounded in service and care. How does our, Bible then speak to, uh, how does our passage then speak to us today? It points to the coming of the amazing slave king who would freely take our place as a slave to purchase our freedom. It points to the truly loving master whose grace leads us to want to offer our whole lives in devotion to him. Would we then give wholehearted devotion to our master, the Lord Jesus Christ? Why don't you pray with me? Lord God, we come before your throne this morning And our heart is to worship you. 
Well, thank you for your word that speaks to us in surprising ways, in surprising places, in places that we wouldn't expect, Lord. And this morning, in the area of slavery. And Lord, I thank you this morning for reminding us that we are your slaves. We are slaves of Christ Jesus. You have purchased us at an amazing cost. And Lord, I pray this morning for anyone sitting here who has not been treating you as their master. Maybe they don't know you, Lord. Or maybe they do know you, but there's areas of life that have been unwilling to surrender to your sovereign control. Lord, I pray you would break in. Help them to see how kind you are, how gracious you are, and to live in the freedom that you, the gracious and merciful Master and King, can only bring. And praise in his name. Amen.